you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. He says, you know in your hearts and your souls all that He's done for you. Remember it. Bring it to mind. Can't you, you can remember it. You've seen it. Remember all that He's done for you. So I say to you as well, remember all the things that the Lord's done for you. And if you're honest with yourselves, you'll say, even if you're struggling, you'll, if you're honest, you'd say, in my heart and in my soul, I know that the Lord, all that He's done for me, all that He's promised for me, He's done. All right, quickly, moving on. Number two, he says this. Secondly, he says, love the Lord. He says it in three different times, three different ways. He says it in verse 6, if you see. He says, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. He says it again, verse 8, you shall cling to the Lord your God. And then in verse 11, he says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. He says, you have to be very careful. See, the danger isn't in this big assembly. He's brought all the people together, all the, the elders, all the leaders. Like the, the danger isn't at that point in that assembly for them to turn away. But it's in, you know, in five or six years, in the average, the grind of day in, day, day in and day out life. And so he says, be very careful. Because it just, what happens is you can just not love the Lord. The danger is not here, or if we're, we go to a great marriage conference and a Bible-based marriage conference or a, a, another Bible conference, the danger isn't there when, for us to walk away, but it's in, you know, on, a, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday during the day, the day in and day out grind. And so he says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Because he's, he's wise. Because he knows that we're worshipers. You worship something. He says, because if you don't worship the Lord, you'll worship other things. In verse 7, you'll worship their, their gods. You'll, so he says, don't make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. We all worship something. He wants us to worship Him and the blessings that come from Him and the good things. He wants us to worship those things that are good. Because if we don't, if we worship the other things that aren't good, says they become a snare or a trap for you, a whip in your sides or a thorn in your eyes. Isn't it easy to see how that happens? Those things that appeal to us initially become thorns or whips in our sides. Take, for instance, something that's good, sports, all the things that it can teach somebody. So you, inv- you put your kid into soccer, and they show some promise. So then they, somebody recruits them to be in a traveling team. So then you go and you are in the traveling team and you miss the weekends. Then you are in conferences or you're in tournaments. And you, then you go to camps. And pretty soon it removes you from your small group because of time. It removes you from that fellowship. You're gone weekends. And it removes you from worship on Sundays. It's like a whip on your side. You've got to do more. You've got to do more. Because you just it's not good enough just to enjoy soccer. You've got to get better. To get better, it becomes a whip on your side. Or he says this. I want you, God says this to you. I want you to delight yourself in what is good and what is true. But there's other things on the internet or somewhere else that appeal to you. 
And so you desire those things. And pretty soon, you need, you need to watch those things or see those things more and more and more. And it twists how you see people. And what has it done? That thing that initially appeared to be beautiful has become a thorn in your eye, as he says. Or he talks about, don't be involved in a serious relationship of these people. It's true today. You know, don't be involved with people who aren't following Christ because slowly and slowly and slowly they have other desires. They have other passions. They become that thing that you wanted for fellowship, that you wanted for community has become a snare and a trap to you. And then thirdly, so he says to them, love the Lord. Because you're going to worship something, love the Lord. But then he says thirdly, here is a decision for you. Here is the results. Verses 12 and 13. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. And then he talks about them being a snare. You know, we see this in Leviticus, if you remember, when Steve went through Leviticus. We saw this in Deuteronomy. He talks about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience or punishment. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, when you get into the promised land, I'm not going with you, but when you get into the promised land, you're going to have 12 tribes. Put six tribes on Mount Gerizim and and talk about all the blessings for obedience. And have have six other nations on Mount Ebal. And they will represent all the curses for disobedience. And we see, in, if you read Joshua 8 later, that's exactly what happened. They get into the promised land, and they have two mountains. And there's bless, they pr- pronounce blessings for obedience on this mountain, or curses for disobedience. And so we see that over and over and over. God says, if you obey me, if you obey me, there's going to be blessings. Namely, for them, you'll live in this good land. But he says, if you don't, there's going to be dis- there will be disobedience. And there will be consequences. He says it even more strongly if you look in chapter 23, verse 15. He says, the, the Lord will bring upon you all the evil until he has destroyed you from off of this good land. Or further down at the end, verse 16, the last part of it, he says, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off this good land that the Lord has given to you. It's like there's the image of you know, this smoldering fire and you're just throwing gasoline on it. The anger of the Lord is going to be kindled. Well, so what do they do? If you read chapter 24, they say, we'll follow the Lord. We'll make the right decision. And they do. And I would love to end my sermon there, but I have four more minutes. So I can't because all you have to do is turn a couple pages Turn over to Judges 2, 1 through 3. They made the right decision after Joshua charges them. But you see in Judges 2, a couple years later, he says this, An angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to my fathers. He says, remember, this is what I did. And I said, I will never break my commandment with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. So I held up my end, but then he says this, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, 
I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you, as the angel of the Lord spoke. So they disobeyed. They made a right decision originally, but they didn't continue in right decisions. So the thing is before us as well. Those decisions and the consequences are the same for us. The Lord says, remember, remember, remember what I've done. And he says, love the Lord your God. But it's about making the same right decision every time. For them, they didn't make the right decision. It's because Joshua says in 24, verse, chapter 24, he says, because you can't. You can't make the right decision. And it's the same for us as well. We can't make this right decision. Over and over and over, we make the wrong decision. But the beautiful glory of the good news of the gospel is that Christ did. We know that he made the right decision by how he lived his life. And we know he made the right decision because not of Joshua's last words, but because we know Jesus' last words. It is finished. He made every right decision. All that was the Lord asked him to do. Because of Christ and his completed work, we know that he lived the perfect life. And so I say to you today, remember. Maybe you say, well, I don't know what the Lord has done in my life. But I can say, well, remember then what he's done on the cross. And I say to you, love the Lord but you can't do it without the help of Christ. So ask the Holy Spirit to work, to make those choices, to have eyes to see the desires and blessings He has for you. <clears throat> My greatest desire is for that we would live together in a community, that we would encourage one another so that maybe for some of us it's in two years, some of us it's in 60 years, but we can just say like Joshua, you know what? With God's help, and a, a body of believers that encouraged me. I remembered, here's what God has done. Remember, and think about all that God's done for me. And yeah, there were difficult times, but I loved the Lord, and it's worth it. And all, here's all the blessings that came from loving the Lord. I pray that that would be true of us today. Right. Tag team preaching, I like it. It's fun. Speed rounds. Here we go. All right, uh, we're going to go to the New Testament this morning. Good morning. My name's Ryan Brown. Um, a lot of often uh, on Sundays you'll see me up here um, leading music. Um, and uh, because I'm involved with music, uh, when Steve Daphne asked me to preach, uh, I think a lot about what we do and why we do what we do. Uh, it's on my mind a lot. And one of the questions that's come across my mind is, why do we even sing? Um, now, regardless of the... Uh, now, maybe... Sorry, maybe the uh, question has crossed your mind, like, oh, why do we sing? I hope it hasn't. But um, besides the commands uh, in Scripture to sing, I think Colossians 3.16 can help us deepen our understanding of why we sing. So would you turn there and read with me? Colossians 3.16. says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in this passage, there's an imperative. There's a command. 
when the, the imperative is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what I want to focus on this morning is understanding and following that imperative. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So before we dive any deeper, uh, it's important to take a step back and look at how Paul builds up to verse 16 in chapter 3. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, uh, which was founded by Epaphras after hearing the gospel in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away. Um, and Paul's writing from prison to the church there in Colossae. And in the first, f- first two chapters of Colossians, Paul writes to the, to the church in Colossae and asserts the preeminence of Christ, as we see in, in chapter 1, verse 15, um, and also his, Christ's all-sufficiency for our salvation and, and our Christian walk. Paul just says, we just need Christ. If we have received Christ as preeminent and all-sufficient in our lives, then we should live and relate to others as if we've been raised with Christ, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1. So Paul goes on to list in verse 5 the things that we're to put off. We're to put off the earthly things. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, he lists the Christ-like qualities which we are to put on. And which leads us to the almost final punch of those qualities, which we're to put on in verse 16. Let's read verse 16 again. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that verse starts out with an imperative, a command. It's to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, in order to understand what the word of Christ is, we have to go back to the church in Colossae and understand their context. And one of the questions in our small group we always ask is, how did the original hearers understand this passage or verse? And oftentimes when I'm thinking of first century Christians, I think, well, they're just like Rock Valley with togas. They're like Rock Valley Bible Church with togas. Um, And... Colossi was very much like Rock Valley, like our church. They were in a, um, a relatively um, medium-sized metro area that had seen better days. Um, and But there's one way they couldn't have been just like Rock Valley Bible Church, because they didn't have the whole Bible yet. They didn't have the printing press or movable type or the whole publishing com- industrial complex that we have Uh, available to us today. So to the church in Colossae, the word of Christ could not have meant all of those red words in your Bible or when you type in Christ in your app, in your Bible app. Um, What they did have were oral accounts of Jesus and his teachings. They had what Epaphras told them about Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, died the death that they deserved on the cross, because of their sin, and was raised on the third day and has ascended into heaven from where he will come again. They believed and were transformed, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 13. So these gospel truths are to dwell in us richly, not just an, not just an intellectual ascent where we just say, yes, I believe that, and then stick it in a corner and pull it out on Sunday mornings. But that Christ is to be preeminent in our lives, individually and also as we gather corporately. And something that we strive for at Rock Valley 
Bible churches, Christ-centered times of corporate worship, Christ-centered lyrics in our, in our songs. And so the application that comes to us through this imperative is, are, the truths dwelling in, are those gospel truths dwelling in you richly? Do you view Christ as preeminent and all-sufficient in your life? So that's the imperative. Well, let's turn our attention to the means by which we are to fulfill that imperative. Paul lays out the means by which we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And he says that we're to teach, admonish in all wisdom, and we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, teaching and admonishing are important means by which we can let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. They're worthwhile and valuable of much more time than we have today. So in, because I only have 15 minutes, I'd like to focus on singing and as one of the means by which we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So Paul says we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why didn't he just say spiritual songs, which would possibly cover the psalms and the hymns? Well, Paul was highlighting the breadth of sung expression available to believers. The psalms might be Old Testament songs set to music, or they might be any song in, the, in all of the Old Testament. Hymns could also have been songs in the Old Testament, or contemporary compositions of Christ-centered praise, as Sam Storm says. Um, there's also spiritual songs might, would, would possibly have been Holy Spirit-led spontaneous praise. So there, there was just a whole breadth of songs available to believers at the time that Paul was writing, and he wanted to highlight that. And I think we have that as well today in the church. Um, so, so how does singing let the word of Christ dwell in us? How does singing all of those, all of, uh, those songs, that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, let the word of Christ dwell in us? Well, singing is effective because it combines truth and emotions, when we have truth in the lyrics of songs that we sing, um, there is theology that we hear, and there's theology that we learn. We hear biblical history. We hear the character and the works of the Lord. We sing truth that becomes ingrained into our hearts. And with that truth comes emotion, so that our, or our affections, as the Puritan said, and they're, they're turned rightly towards God in ways that, that build us up and let the word of Christ dwell in us. So because singing combines truth with emotions, it's able to guide and correct our emotions and our thinking. So we're not just pursuing um, some emotional experience through music, and we're not just intellectually giving, uh, a, like just saying yes to those things that which we're supposed to believe. But it combines those two things in a way that draws us and lets the word, uh, the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So in thinking about the combination of truth and emotions in music. I think uh, one of the best examples that comes to mind is before the throne of God, um, before the throne of God above. The second verse says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. So in that verse alone, there's theological truths of substitutionary atonement. There's propitiation. They're embedded in the poetry of that verse. Uh, and they're guiding our emotions. 
when, when we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, and we talk about guilt, and we talk about guilt in that song, um, there, the song is teaching us, and it's guiding our emotions. And I think when we come together corporately and sing that song, it also, singing can also have a teaching and admonishing aspect in, in, in that when we stand next to our brothers and sisters in Christ or we sing across the auditorium to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. What an encouraging thing to stand together and, and sing those truths those theological truths, and yet our affections are turned towards the Lord and we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Um, And that also highlights the importance of good lyrics in songs that we sing, um, which is something we strive for. Uh, So finally, we must do all of this. Paul says we must do all of this with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that's all thankfulness is to characterize the entire Christian life, as Paul lays out in the next verse, in verse 17. And finally, it must be in our hearts. Again, it's not just some intellectual thing that we say yes to. It needs to be in our hearts, dwelling in us. So if the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, and we are to be teaching and admonishing one another, then there must be a response in our hearts. When we come together, we sing, because we are not only responding to who God is and what he's done, but we're teaching, admonishing, and singing to one another with thankfulness in our hearts so that we might let the word of Christ dwell on us richly. Thank you. Thank you, brothers. My, uh, my name is Gary Lundberg, and um, Brian and I, uh, somehow we, we did not get the memo. There, there was a plaid attack here with Andy and my colleagues, uh, so we're out of uniform, but we'll still do okay. We'll still do okay because we've got the Word of God, and we did not coordinate our messages, but God did. God has a message that's going to speak to hearts and minds of every person who's here this morning. Let's read uh, from the First Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church that had a lot of issues. He just goes, he has a kind of a shopping list as he's speaking to them, going through a number of things he's heard about that are going on. Paul started the Corinthian church, the church of Corinth, and it got off to a good start, and it's gotten way off track. And so he needs to go through step one, step two, step three, step four. First Corinthians three is where he deals with one of those um, issues. He says, Uh, starting at verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, 
but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Um, as Paul is making the, the principle of growth, all believers want to grow. We, here's the truth. We're all going to change. We're changing physically. We're going to change ethically, spiritually, emotionally. If we're not growing, strengthening, in other words, we will be coming weaker. There is no way of saying, I just like where I'm at. I'm going to plateau here. We are going to change. So let us grow. Paul is saying to them, you guys stop growing. And the cle- and a evidence of that is that you're starting to divide up and saying, well, I'm, in the, I'm a fan club of Apollo. Of Paul. I'm a fan club of Apollos. Later on in this chapter, which I didn't read, there's another group that says, I'm a fan club of Peter. And another one says, I'm in the fan club, just Jesus. I don't listen to any human preachers. Jesus is my leader. They're not growing because they don't see the fellowship, the integration, the brotherhood of all of them together. It is God's intention that we are to go from being born again, babies, to being more like Jesus. That's the maturity. And it's going to take some time. It's going to be a process. Sometimes it looks like, depending on who is mentoring you and discipling you, you're making rapid progress. Sometimes it feels like I'm slowing down. But nonetheless, if we get ourselves back on track, we will be, as Paul is saying, ready for the solid food, something more complex, something more challenging, something that gets our muscles, spiritual muscles, uh, more uh, on track. One of the things that's in here is that Paul is using in this example about this is why I'm proving that you're not mature, is that these loyalties are not helpful to other people. You're just saying, I'm just listening to Paul. I'm just listening to Apollos. That's the best. He is the good one. And the other guys are are uh, less uh, less qualified. What we want to know is, uh, Lord, can I grow in my Christ-likeness all the time? Being like Paul was a good thing. He was, a, he was trying to reflect Christ. My goal is to be more like Jesus. All of us are. But not to be uh, filled with the celebrities. Now, in those days, that was Paul and Paul. They were the superstars and they were, they were worthy of their apostles and others like Peter. We have our own uh, uh, versions of that here in the United States in the 21st century. Uh, we have the radio and television preachers, and all, many of which are good, or authors or different people. And uh, someone say, I like, um, I like John MacArthur. Someone say, Joyce Meyer, that's my favorite. I only listen to Joyce Meyer or whoever else, fill in the blank. We've got our favorites. But you know, all of those people, if they are doing God's ministry to you, they're saying, Jesus. Whoever I listen to and are blessed by, I want to be more like Jesus. Many uh, years ago, in fact, it was 70 years ago, they had the same problem back then. There was a Youth for Christ rally in Chicago. So this is 1946, and the big star at that time was a evangelist named Tory Johnson. 
Uh, and Tory Johnson was very popular, excellent speaker. He was a pastor in Chicago, led the Youth for Christ movement. And they were going to have a big meeting. And they said to um, Dr. Tory Johnson, would you be the speaker for our meeting? And he checked his calendar and says, I've already made a commitment. I can't be there that night. They had had him many times. They knew he'd have a big crowd. And, and they said, well, we, we really need you, Dr. Johnson. You are important to making this a successful event. And they said, uh, nope, you're going to have to find someone else. And they went back and forth. Finally, he said, look, I've got a friend who is a, a younger pastor, and uh, he would be just as good. You'll like him. And they, he's, they had never heard of him, uh, some guy from North Carolina. And finally, because they had no other options, they said, okay, we will we'll accept this guy. So he came and spoke to the, the, um, the Youth for Christ rally. Some guy named Billy Graham, young 28-year-old, nobody had heard of him. And they thought, well, that, was, that wasn't half bad. Uh, and Billy came. He had not spoken before this group before. He was like someone planting the seed. He wrote in his journal after that meeting, July uh, 1946. He said, it was a good meeting, a pretty good response. One person got saved. And he probably thought, I need to get better at being an evangelist <laughs> if that's all I'm going to have. What he didn't know and could not have known was the person who got saved was a young 16-year-old boy uh, handing out songbooks named Warren. And Warren wasn't didn't have much to commend him at that time, but I would guess that everybody in this room uh, has either heard him speak or read one of his books and probably has them on the bookshelves in your home. That 16-year-old boy named Warren, otherwise known as Warren Wearsby, got saved that night. God planted a seed in Warren Wearsby to, to preach the gospel became what Billy, decades later, would say, the greatest Bible expositor of the 20th century. God is doing something. This passage says, one plants a seed, another waters, but God makes it grow. God makes it grow. We are not depending on our own skill. We're depending on God to make it grow. This church, your family, your ministry, whatever God has given you to do. Growth comes from faithful service. And our lives and our gifts, each person here who's a believer has spiritual gifts. It's like the channel, like a, like a, a, a valley or a, uh, where there's a river runs through. And once we know what our calling is, and what our gifts are, we say, God, I'm going to open it up. I'm going to make it possible for your grace to pour through my life of whatever kind it is. And it is going to make something grow. It is going to bring glory to your name. Success comes in doing things by God's power when we are doing what we are created and equipped to do. So a lot of our, our discipleship, is, God, I want to be a blessing. I want to do what I was able to do by your power and by your strength. 
That is not always clear, and often that is harder to do. There are some things which are more popular. Music, like Ryan was talking about, you get more attention from doing uh, music rather than the janitorial services or preparation for VBS or some other thing. Let God um, uh, call you to what he wants you to do because if God has made you able, not if God, since God has made us able, he will prosper our life and make it grow. And we have no way of knowing that. Here um, Paul writes in verse 9. So we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And here's a bunch of metaphors. He just kind of strings together. He's going to talk more about it in other parts of Corinthians. But the team, the, the first thing he says, we are God's fellow workers. We are a team. Paul is a part of the team. Apollos is a part of the team. Peter is a part of the team. We all have a function. We're working for the same thing. He says we are God's field. I like to change the metaphor. We're God's garden. <laughs> in a garden, there are different kinds of flowers that are growing. They're in different proportions and different arrangements. God has designed it. All of us, and I really like this, we're all flowers. <laughs> we're, we have a beauty. We have an attraction. We have a purpose in the garden. We don't want it to be all of one type. We want many colors. We want many types. We want different seasons. As Some bloom early, some bloom later. Whatever it may be, God has designed it with variety. And then it's God's building. There's different parts of the building. And each of the building has a function. Later on in 1 Corinthians 12, he completes another metaphor. It says we are God's, we are the body of Christ. So there are hands, there are arms, legs, feet, different parts of the body. Christ is the head. That is part of our saying, this is the part I'm to play. I don't have to do everything. I don't have to do everything. I just need to be faithful in what God has called me to do. I have a, as I was preparing for this message this morning, I wanted an inspiring message, uh, inspiring person who really, in addition to Paul and Apollos, uh, really, I think, fit in well with this. And there is a woman who you may have heard the name, but you haven't heard much about her, and that is a woman who lived, born actually in 1669, named Susanna Wesley. And Susanna Wesley uh, had a difficult life, but she was a woman who served God. She said, I am going to do my part. I am going to serve the Lord. She was a clergyman's daughter, married at 19, which was not untypical. She had 19 children. That's a big family, right? <laughs> but of the 19 children, nine died in infancy. So she ended up with 10. Uh, There's only eight still living at the time she died many years later. Four, um, two Two pairs of twins were part of the infant mortality. So there's, think about the suffering that went through that. Her husband abandoned the family for one year because of some dispute they had. She just left by herself. He went away. Uh, later when he came back, um, there was two periods in which he was in debtor's prison for a period of time. She worked hard to bless her family. She had to uh, overcome poverty. 
the houses they lived in burned down completely to the ground twice. This was a difficult life. But she trusted God to say, God, you need to give the increase. You need to give the growth. I got 10 kids to raise virtually by myself. Here is a woman who had said, I'm going to teach, educate all my children, a good homeschooling mom. She taught them Greek, Latin, Bible, theology. I can't imagine that kitchen table. Those kids were having family devotions in the original Greek. (laughs) They learned theology more than I learned in college, probably by the time they were 10 years old. A lot of stress, a lot of uncertainty, poverty. But God gave the increase. I pulled out a a letter she wrote, or a paragraph of a letter, which I think reflects this woman's commitment to serve God. So this is during a period of time when her husband had just walked away and left her with these children to raise. And she wrote this letter to him. I I wish I could meet this woman. she She is on target. She said to her husband, I am a woman, but I am also the mistress of a large family. And though the superior charge of the souls contained in it lies upon you, yet in your long absence I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. I am not a man or a minister, Yet, as a mother and a mistress, I felt I ought to do more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin with my own children, in which I observed the following method. I take such proportion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with every child apart. On Monday, I talk with Molly. On Tuesday, with Hetty. Wednesday, with Nancy. Thursday, with Jackie. Friday with Patty and Saturday with Charles. Of course, you may recognize a couple of those names. Charles was Charles Wesley, and what she called Jackie was John Wesley. She said, this is my pattern. I am going to minister to my flock. He's a mother that trusted God. The ministry results of that woman uh, come to this day. She said, God will give the increase of what little I have. I will give it as unto Jesus. And she worked with faithfulness. As a result of that, John and Charles Wesley, then uh, as they grew up and became men and college students, they started the holiness movement at Oxford, which then became the Methodist Church, which then also became the Wesleyan Church, And the Methodist Church is not the current version, but the previous version, where they sent circuit-writing preachers who preached five times a day all over America. They also started, or were influential in the starting of the Moravian Church, which sent missionaries around the world. Um, The Church of the Nazarene came because of the, the ongoing work of all of these people. The Salvation Army can be linked to the Wesleyan brothers and Susanna Wesley. And George Whitfield was led to the Lord by John and Charles Wesley and, and discipled by him. George Whitfield 
became a greatest preacher of his time. This is the 18th century. He came and brought evangelism to America, as well as to England. He was key, along with Jonathan Edwards, with starting the Great Awakening about 30 years before the American Revolution, where the saloons were emptied and turned into prayer halls. As George Whitfield preached to thousands, which was an amazing thing to do at that time, what would America be like today if it wasn't for the Great Awakening? That was part of Susanna Wesley's ministry. All the things that we do, we want to turn them over to God. There is more going on than our eyes can see. She saw a family to raise. You have a family to raise. You don't have the stress that she had, I hope. (laughs) However, by faith we believe that God will take our lives and make them significant for his glory and for the blessing of others for generations to come if we have that time. Let's pray and close. Heavenly Father, we want to be faithful every day because you are the one who gives the increase. Lord, we are, we are just faithful servants, men and women, moms and dads, who are eager to uh, let our lives show forth your glory. Father, may your name be lifted up as we walk each day in good times and hard times, for, um, for the salvation of souls and the, and the blessing of the church and for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for coming. We hope you have a happy Mother's Day. Will all of the, uh, the children come up? And we will uh, go over the notes for today.